Although some corn is grown in each state, two-thirds of the corn of the United States is grown in an area called the Corn Belt. Why do we have a Corn Belt here? Thousands of years ago, Irish because we've got some corned beef going on around here. We've done this a hundred times, and is that really how you're going to start this? You know we're not cornicating around here. That's clue number one. I'll quote the Book of Cobb. Then Cobb answered the corn and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. End quote. And what I'm saying here is this will make you stronger, Elliot. Probably. Like all corn consumption, it makes us stronger American-ear Americans. Did you just call me Corn Fred? Because I don't think I am. And how long is this episode? How long does it take a combine to harvest an acre of corn? Is that a rhetorical question? It's like 20 minutes, give or take. So in like four acres, we'll be done. This is our new measuring system. Sorry, Shaq. All right, I have to draw the line here. If you haven't guessed what this episode is about by now, uh, you're about to find out and probably be slightly disappointed. Agreed. So we have a title to this episode, so hopefully people know what it's about. But uh, we are going to be definitely talking about drawing the line, as the kids say when they're talking about, you know, inbreeding corn for purebred strains of corn. I just have to say that Andy is the only person that I'm aware of who talked to the children of corn and learned something. They had a lot to say. Everyone else just got confused and probably died. Just give them a minute. They, They have, like, in their soul of souls... That is not with their bodies. Like, they have some good good thoughts. So, welcome back, everyone. I don't think y'all are ready for what's about to happen here. This is the Poor Pearls Almanac, and today, for our 100th episode, yes, 100, we're talking a brief history of corn in America. Yeah, we did it. We made it to 100 episodes. Yeah, we're going to be doing it. All corn, all day. You could call us Corn Hub. That's so gross. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna steal that and use that later in this episode. I guarantee it. <laughs> yeah. So we're gonna focus specifically on post-colonial history. I was gonna try to make a corn joke out of that, but I just I couldn't. And the reason why really is because this topic is already super complex, and like going further back into history, it's just more. Oh, damn, man. Let's take a moment to reflect on episode 100. You don't want to take some time to re- reflect and. Think about all we've accomplished, or you just want to plow th- straight through some corn? Yeah, I know. It's it's one of those things that it's hard to believe that we're still here 100 episodes later, and it's just now that we're really thinking about, despite all the different things that we've talked about, corn. Like, it's crazy. We made it 100 episodes without focusing on, like, corn. As I was saying, there's no way we can really do justice to the subject of corn and pre-Columbian history in one episode. So if you are interested, I guess, in hearing about corn from us from pre-colonial times, we talk about it a bit in the Mayan Milpa and the Adena episodes. But today we are going to talk about corn in the modern era, the post-colonial or colonized period, you could say, and why we are where we are. Yeah, and I know this is a podcast, so you can't see Andy's face, but he's visibly excited to talk about corn. Like, he's kind of bouncing in his seat right now, so just 
it's corn, Elliot. It's corn. Come on. Like, how can you not be excited about corn? I don't like corn. Corn on the cob? Not a fan. Corn tortillas? I mean, okay. Everything you eat? Definitely has a corn derivative in it, but that doesn't mean I like corn. You do like corn. You like Doritos? I get, yeah. Corn. Oreos? Corn. Oreos are corn? Choreos, yes. Choreos, Elliot. So... Anyways, let's talk Let's talk corn. We're going to have to fact check that. <laughs> if I look on the package of Oreos and I find out it's all corn, I'm going to freak the fuck out. I'm going to freak the fuck out. You are just eating basically different types of like corn. Everything Derivatives, you eat. yes. Derived yes. from corn. Got it. Oreos, corn. Like filet fish probably corn-fed. Chicken, definitely corn-fed. Chicken is basically corn. It is basically corn, yeah. My point is that like basically like 30% of our diet today is corn and we don't really know why or how. Like if you are what you eat, it's something people say, I guess, your extremities like body mass wise are like 100% corn. Okay, so we'll chalk that up to another proprietary proles measuring system. Yeah, the PPS. So uh, is corn good or bad for you? I think that's PMS, proles measuring system. Oh, shit, you're right. I fucked it up. Uh, so is corn syrup good or bad for you compared to like cane syrup? And why? What's the big deal about things like corn fed beef? Why do we invest so heavily in like ethanol? These are all questions I feel like people think about but never go much further because it's really complicated. You know, why, why do people say like, oh, take seven pounds of corn to get like a pound of beef? There's like a lot, a lot of propaganda from both sides on corn. And basically what I want to do is talk about this really long and fucked up history about how we got to where we are today. So I'm hoping that in this episode, we can dispel some misunderstandings and have like a really good sober analysis on a spectrum of issues around like corn. All right. So let's get started. We'll start at the beginning. We're going to get shucked like all those cobs on Cornhub, I guess. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Gross. I did it. I fucking made it. You 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 pulled you pulled a me. I'm so proud. That was me sipping a beer in honor of my my friend on St. Patty's Day. So, what exactly is corn? So, I think that's a good place to start because if someone asks you what corn is, what would you describe it as, Elliot? I'm going to put you on the spot. Uh, a grass. Fuck you. You knew that because of me. Yeah, you've you've told me about corn millions of times before this episode, guy. I listen. You were supposed to play dumb. I'm a good listener. Come on. All right, so yeah, corn is a grass. It was domesticated on like a sliding scale between like 9,000 and 1,000 years ago. And I say domesticated because it was moved around and then had to evolve to new conditions. So in a sense, it was, I guess, domesticated like 9,000 years ago, but I guess domesticated for a specific environment, like closer to a thousand, depending where you were living, specifically northern climates. Like I said, this indigenous management of corn is a really long and complicated like story of thousands of individual cultures, and we're not going to cover that here. Not because it's not important, but rather because it's outside of the scope of the content we're covering or the content I could personally cover here. Right. So when you told me that the production of corn involves burning grass and rocks. I thought it was a party, but you were talking about nixtamalization. And then that's when I, that is the moment right there that I that's stopped That's the listening. reason you remembered is because I, we were talking about burning grass? No, that's what got my interest. When I found out that it wasn't that, I stopped listening to you. Oh, okay. So everything else from here on out, you're not going to know. 
not until I listen to the episode again. No pressure. I'm watching you. All right. All right. Test me. So everyone, like I said, kind of knows corn as this like ubiquitous ingredient in everything. And the question is like, how much do we actually grow? So in the United States, corn uses more land than any other crop. And that might not be totally surprising, but this spans over 97 million acres, which is like roughly the size of California. We grow so much that globally 10% of all crops are corn. U.S. corn in particular also consumes like a, an extremely large amount of freshwater resources. Again, not surprising, but this is estimated to be around 5.6 cubic miles per year of irrigation water drawn from like rivers and aquifers, which, you know, given climate change, seems like a big fucking problem. Yeah, it's a lot of water. It's a little bit. It's a tall glass of water or what's what the fuck is the phrase that creepy dudes use? A, a tall drink a of tall water. A tall drink of water, yeah. Yeah. Now, on top of the water and the landmass itself, you also have fertilizers. And unsurprisingly, this is pretty massive. Over 5.6 million tons of nitrogen, for example, is applied to corn each year through like chemical fertilizers, as well as nearly a million tons of nitrogen from actual manure. The question that everyone should be wondering here is, how did we get here? Uh, Jesus freaks in the Bible Belt. I mean, I won't say no, but we'll get there. So fucking so, yes and no answer already? Yes. Yes and no. It's the 100th episode. I got to do a yes and I got to do like 100 of them, one for every episode in honor. So until the 1800s, corn was eaten mostly by like poor people in the United States. And, and again, I'm going to be speaking most specifically about non-native communities. It was a really cheap and prolific crop, and it was generally consumed by like farmers and often fed to like prisoners because they didn't care about them. By like the early 1800s, with the Industrial Revolution, we have three particular technologies that really helped it go from being this like poor person, like the equivalent of lobster at this time, which now is lobster. These three particular technologies that really helped propel the grain from like the diets of the starving and the poorest classes to like everyone's dining room table. Right. And I guess I will thank capitalism for that, as always. Yeah. So the first is the iron plow. And this allowed farmers to like sow deeper into the soil and more importantly, on much larger scales. The Midwest was planted with corn on a commercial basis precisely because of this very specific, simple, but really revolutionary tool. Now, coincidentally, at this time, we have other technologies. And again, there's this confluence of events that have happened. And that's this plow, railroads coming through across the Midwest, and canneries that also showed up at this time. So you've got storage capacity, you've got the ability to grow more food faster, and you've got the ability to move food more quickly across the country. So this allowed things like cash crops to start being sold on massive scales. One of the things to keep in mind is that like we think of corn as like corn on the cob and like maybe if you've spent a little bit of time around agriculture, you're familiar with like dent corn. But at this time, there wasn't like a homogenous corn that was utilized by everyone. We had different types of strains and with those strains came varying size and even taste. That sounds weirdly familiar. Yeah, this was like a really great time to be a farmer in the US. You have all this stuff going on. It shouldn't be a surprise then that as farmers were trying to figure out what to do with all their different types of corn, to think about how to use it in ways that could be, again, stored, increase the value of their crops, 
and help homogenize it a little bit in the sense of like making it easier to transport and sell. So they made whiskey and like a lot of it because, you know, you go from very cheap corn to like something that's worth a lot of money and people will pay a lot of money for. And you can put it in a bottle that was made in a factory 500 miles from you and everyone's using the same bottle and it stores and like who's going to complain? What this meant was basically by like the 1820s, the average American was drinking like five gallons of hard liquor a year compared to like today where the average person is drinking less than a gallon. I think my average is still around five gallons. So I'm more American than all of you. You are more American than all of us. And I'm very proud of you for it, Elliot. You're a proud American corn fed man. <sighs> <laughs> you didn't like going to make that career on Cornhub. No. Eating, the, eating that corn. Listen, I was going to- I was Cleaning that cob. I was going to bring the Cornhub bit back with the iron plow. It was trending on Cornhub, but I, I just, you know what? Never mind. I'm going to leave that You've already one. done it. It's there. It's, yeah, it's, it's out there. It's canon now. Look it up. Iron plow trending on Cornhub. Yeah. So by the 1850s, as the corn industry was picking up steam, like- Choo-choo. God damn it. No, train jokes are the basement floor for dad jokes. So you have like a, a whole lot of climbing to do. I don't know if you Listen, can dip. I don't I know built, if you can. I don't know if you could go lower. I built that house, that that dad joke house. That was me constructing it bit by bit, nail by nail, pun by pun. Well, it's a native burial ground, and you're going to be haunted. So good. Yeah, so these unique varieties basically were really difficult for, like, the companies that were shipping all of this stuff to package, and it was really hard for, like, traders to, like, figure out a way to sell it, because it was like, well, what's the difference? How come, like, this one's green or red and this one's yellow, and, like, the, the kernels are different sizes, and, like, how much is husk versus the actual kernel? And it was just really difficult for all these places where they would sell this massive amount of corn to actually, like, figure out what to do with it. Yeah, because we have like an advanced version of capitalism where they could have sold just corn or pre-shucked corn and charge more for it. But I don't think they did any of that shit. So maybe it would have helped them if they had invented a term like, I don't know, locavore and like charge twice the price. Right. So trade boards and rail hubs like Chicago encouraged corn farmers to try to breed like one standard crop. And this dream would actually like be realized in the 1893's World Fair where James Reed's what's called yellow dent corn won the blue ribbon. Now, if you're not familiar with dent corn, it isn't like corn on the cob. Most corn that people grow is actually a hard corn kernel, and it's super dense with calories, and that's what needs that processing to use it. That nextimalization, you got to burn that grass. Exactly. It's like the flower to flower pipeline. Get it? God damn it, Andy. I told you I built that house. Now, what does this do besides make terrible jokes? It makes the corn extremely shelf-stable and easy to ship and sort and all of those things. So whatever happened to the World's Fair? Do they still do those? Yeah, they do, but it, it's in quarantine like with the rest of us. That's kind of sad. Yeah, they're, they're kind of a niche kind of thing these days. They're kind of corny, to be honest. We don't need this. Don't we? Nobody deserves this. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry to everyone. They, they, listen, if you are still here after 100 episodes, they want it, Elliot. I don't they, have- They're a... asking for it. <laughs> the reviews are tapering off. Yeah, probably. 
All right, let's let's fast forward this story of corn. By the late 1800s, the yields had stagnated. Policymakers got nervous, and the federal government undertook a series of initiatives to help boost U.S. food production. Things like irrigation and dam projects were put in place in order to bring farming to like desert areas, and, and they also invested in railroads to transport food to the cities. Okay, so they have growth taken care of, and they have transport, but at this point, it's really important for them to increase the yields. Why was it so important for them to grow more corn? Well, you see, when a man watches corn tube or corn, I swear, corn, Andy, this is, is the la- this is the last <laughs> episode of this podcast. Keep it okay, up. Okay, fine, fine, fine. So four out of every five people at this time still lived on farms in the U.S. compared to like today where it's, you know, 1%. Okay, so that's a huge labor suck. Four out of five people on a farm. That's basically how it was treated. Industrialization didn't really have time for a huge labor force stuck out on a farm, and those farms just needed to become more efficient. So that's where the government stepped in. In 1914, the Smith-Lever Act formed a partnership between like land-grant universities and the USDA to invest in things like agricultural education and extension work to help both train farmers in the new technologies and to work to find new improvements for production. By the 1920s and 30s, scientists discovered a way to boost corn production to a level that was basically unthinkable before. They bred hybrid strains that had larger ears and could be grown closer together, which allowed farmers to produce a lot more corn with less land. This discovery, coupled with the introduction of new industrial fertilizers and... Fuel-tilizers. Fertile lizards? No, that doesn't work. How do we get fertilizers in corn hub? That's my question. I mean, that's a Watch whole... Watch this nitrogen shock. That's a, that's a whole genre in and of itself. Yeah. So anyways, with this black gold and more efficient farm tools, such as like tractors, output skyrocketed. The number of bushels of corn per acre doubled over a short period of time and then continued to rise each year. And even today, that continues to be the case. In 1920, the average bushel per acre was around like 20, which was a really big deal at the time. Elliot, what do you think today the average bushels per acre is? A gross, also known as 12 dozen or 144, 144 bushels. All right, you're actually not too far off. 2021 had an average of 177 bushels an acre. We can produce on an acre, like to put that in context, what we had once needed almost nine acres for 100 years ago. So the million, really like billion dollar question here is really, is that a good or a bad thing? And for who? And that's a really good question. I don't have an answer. Sorry. <laughs> I'm just amazed that a gross was actually close to the correct answer. Only only off by 33. It's not bad. No. It's pretty good for me. So how does this compare to like wheat and other cash crops that were being grown? Yeah. So compared to like other commodity crops, like wheat in 1920 had around like 13 bushels an acre. Now today it's around 44, which is like more for sure, but it's nowhere close to to corn. Yeah. So do we have like specifically petrol chemical fertilizers to thank for this like ridiculous growth? Or is it, I mean, it sounds like it's a combination of petrochemicals and corn being bred to be fucking awesome. Yeah. So let's talk about why corn is just so fucking good at being a food. And this, what we're going to talk about actually kind of goes back to one of our very early episodes on grazing. 
And it has to do specifically with how plants photosynthesize. Now, like wheat and soybean and basically all of the other major grain crops are what's called C3 plants. Corn is a C4 plant. Yeah, that means it can explode with an electrical charge. Yeah, kind of. What it means really is that it's far more efficient with things like nitrogen. The C4 pathway is in effect a turbocharger for the more conventional C3 pathway. Just as like a turbocharger, and I'm sorry if you're not a car person because I'm not either really, a turbocharger basically improves an engine by forcing more air into the manifold. And C4 grasses basically do this with improving photosynthetic performance by forcing CO2 into the standard, quote-unquote, C3 photosynthetic apparatus. So I'll just break that down by saying this grass, C4, it doesn't actually explode. It just does a little bit better in heat, and it can, like Andy said, use a bit more inputs to cram into like the same amount of space. So it's got a bit more efficiency in converting light to food. It's what makes a Subaru a Subaru. Door fires. I don't really know if that applies here. <laughs> I, I think it does. Like, come on. You got the muffler that sounds like a someone shoved a corn cob in it and like an energy drink. Same thing. I used to have a Subaru, but no corn muffler. Energy drink, <laughs> maybe. Okay, fine. If you say so. So the point is that the added efficiency of this increased performance mechanism is pretty obvious when you start comparing corn to these other plants. Now, to put this all into perspective, only about 3% of flowering plant species use the C4 pathway, but this relative handful of species accounts for like 23% of the carbon fixed in the entire world. Okay, so that's kind of a big deal. It is. And C4 plants not only grow up to like 100% faster than common C3 plants, but they also make like cheaper quality leaves, which allows them to produce like a lot more roots, like 50% more roots, which again, reinforces their ability to produce more, well, like everything. Which also reinforces their ability to focus on size and seed quality too, though, right? Exactly. Like we're still at this really early stage of fully understanding C4 plants. It seems to be like a more recent evolutionary development, and I'm sure like within the next decade, we'll be looking back at this episode and thinking about how little we understood about this. But at this point, what we do know is that corn is really good at evolving quickly, producing a ton more food out of less resources because of this evolutionary trait that was probably pretty recent. Like, it kind of reminds me of, like, when you're watching, like, a horror, like, alien movie and, like, the aliens grow, like, way faster than everyone else. And it seems like you can't keep up. Like, that's corn, basically. That's kind of creepy. So, I guess another question this brings to mind is whether or not this is a good thing. Like, uh, one question that comes to mind for me is, like, does corn grow well with other crops? And if so, how come it's just corn being grown like the monocrop like it is? So yeah, that's a multi-billion dollar question. That's the kind of question that gets you like unalived by someone whose name rhymes with like Billary Flinton. That's 1000% not a name. Not yet. How do you think names are made, Elliot? Don't do this. They're born under the full corn moon. No, they aren't. They're evolving and finding their own identity and finding different and exciting new ways to offend people with their beauty and perfection of white Angelina Jolie somethingness. For the record, none of this is relevant to corn. Billary Flinton cares. Do you? 
Do you want to shoot yourself in the back of the head on a yacht with no one else around you? Twice. Twice? (laughs) Oh, God. We're going to get shut down. Howdy. I'm Angel Luna. And I'm Nash Flynn. We are two comedians with a podcast. It's very original of us. It's a history tour about everyone's final destination. As a reformed academic, I've researched a lot of death history. And I'm here also. We talk about ways we die, ways we get buried, and ways we get remembered. Join us and listen to Death and Friends. Okay, we're out of time, so I guess that's the commercial. Cool. Oh, wait, no. Available everywhere you listen to... So they grew super corn that grew massive. Like super massive. Like corn hub big. Yeah, like corn hub sets a standard that no one can really match at home, really. And because of that, this entire new industry supported it. And this was in the 20s and 30s. That industry was called the energy industry. The only fertilizers that could satisfy corn's appetite for nitrogen were also conveniently developed at this time and actually kind of coincidentally. So where'd these fertilizers come from? So if we're going to do this subject like true justice, like 3,000 years ago. No. When, well, then like 1,500 years ago in the small Try town. Try again, of, motherfucker. Fine. A German chemist in 1909 named Fritz Haber developed a high-temperature, energy-intensive process, which basically synthesized plant-available nitrate from the air. Was that so hard? It's literally killing me. We're starting there. That's our starting point. Accept it. (sighs) This extremely high-energy process Haber developed is often called, unsurprisingly, the Haber process. He named it himself. Yeah. Germans. Am I right? It's amazing. Get it, Elliot? Maze. You really squeeze the corn pun in there? You, I'm all ears for it. It will be amazing when I throw myself or you into traffic. I'm not sure. As long as it's a Subaru. <laughs> I'll do my best. <laughs> it's what makes the Subaru. I mean, maybe the, the, the leaking gaskets will save you. Like It'll just spray a little oil on you. Get you nice and slick so you just slide right off. Okay, Haber. What exactly is energy intensive? Like, what are we talking about? Does it take like Hoover Dam type energy to do this? Or is it like special equipment? What's going on? So it's very much like it's outside of the scope of what your brain can fully comprehend. And that sounds like a little dramatic, but like I'm absolutely serious. 2% of all the energy supply on the earth is used just to produce nitrogen for farming. 2% of everything. 2% of every solar panel, every nuclear plant. Is used to make nitrogen for farming. Yes. That seems like a problem. It's a huge problem. It's basically why the argument that we produce more than enough food for people is really misleading. Because we do. Like, that's 100% true. But that process really needs that insane amount of energy to keep our food system going. It's estimated that like half of all human flesh that exists on the earth today was basically originated in the production of nitrogen through this process. So like we're basically all like natural gas babies with like corn fed extremities that are like waving in the wind. Holy shit. This episode is filled with porn references and horror movie references all at the same time. Children of the corn is not what you think. I mean, it's not on Cornhub. There is a version on Cornhub. I that's, don't want to see it. That's the late Don't want to see it. Don't want to see it. Um, all of this seems like it's, 
I don't know. Like we we talk about it a lot in our earlier episodes, and I'm sure it's a running theme because that's what podcasts have sometimes. Only but, the good ones, right? But we don't talk about just like using less energy. It's usually about being more efficient with the energy that we do use. So if we could sort of fix one part of this, maybe it wouldn't be so messed up. Yeah. Uh, I well, let's say this. I don't mean fix. I mean change. Like yeah, just. Delta, Delta the shit. Yeah, I mean, what we have now is obviously, like, not ideal. Even before we get into what you're talking about, like, we should talk about the fact that we're talking about these, I don't want to say the word unnatural, because that's inherently not right, but, like, this idea of, like, using petro-fertilizers that are not, like, provided by organic breakdown of material in the soil or anything like that, we have no evidence that these are necessarily, like, bad for us. Like there's no evidence of long-standing negative impacts on our bodies or even the plants themselves. We do know we can point to the damages to our soil fairly easily because of how those petrochemicals are applied and in terms of like what else has to be applied with them. That's kind of outside of the scope of what we're talking about today that we will cover at another point. But the point is that like this is all pretty like unwell. Okay, so I'm getting my human brain wrapped around the situation. It might take me some time, so bear with me. But did like the big oil that we know today push for all of this usage when petrochemicals were just getting started, or how did how did the snowball get get rolling? Well, big oil wasn't really a thing at this point in the early 20th century, at least not the way we we think of it today. And even today, most fertilizers are processed from like natural gas or from even just oil byproducts. And if there's one thing we do know, big corporations love to sell and make money off their fucking byproducts. Yeah, it seems to be a running theme in my life and in this podcast. And we could talk about the relationships between like natural gas and oil and coal and the petrochemical industry since they all had like a lot to gain from this or from like the farming industry itself, which could very quickly grow massive amounts of calories and do it incredibly cheaply. Just to keep this in context, we're still talking about like the 1920s. So there's like a lot of runway to get to how fucked we are today. Oh, yeah. I feel like I know how this one worked out. The bottom fell out of the market, right? Yeah, in the 1920s, we had this little thing. I think it was called like a, a a depression. I don't know. You know, who could have predicted the consequences of massive glut into a market at cheap costs would create the consequences that we could have easily foreseen? Yeah, I don't ever do that. Yeah, there's there's a kernel of truth to that statement, Elliot. A kernel. Fine. There's also some other major events that are happening at the same time that are really important. While we did have this Great Depression and then the Dust Bowl, which followed very quickly afterwards, we kind of have this very interesting quick rotation happen in the, the farming industry. We have cheap food and then companies getting gutted by their own overproduction. And then very quickly, a population that couldn't even buy the dirt cheap food available. Like spam. Yeah, so the government then, you know, and this is a very limited US government at this time, decided to step in and it was like, okay, we're gonna we're gonna give subsidies. People need to eat. Things like quote unquote paid land diversion, which basically meant we'll pay you to not plant on it, which the idea was to help set minimum price supports to help farmers be profitable without paying farmers directly for their produce. Yeah, so at the expense of taxpayers and the purchases of the food. 
Yeah, and it's kind of a complicated subject, especially given the unique time this was happening during, because, of course, not only were we capable of growing more food on less land, but we were also learning through, like, mechanization how to grow food with less hands, too. But that didn't mean at this time, it wasn't like today where there's 1% of farmers. There were still a lot of farmers. So you wanted to keep them employed and being able to afford bread themselves, but also then have the other 70, 60, whatever it was, percent of the population still be able to buy food too. And during this time, we also see like world wars ebbing and flowing. And at this time, before this, the US had started to invest in the production of massive equipment for like making explosives, specifically like ammonium nitrate, which is what the Haber process was initially designed to do. Right on. I just have to back up a bit. I said spam was cheap in 1920, but spam wasn't invented until 1937. So Jesus I'd, Christ, Elliot. I don't Come know on. what an example of cheap food in 1920s is. Corn. God damn it. <laughs> okay, so like I said, during this period, we have a lot of things happening. And after the First World War, which is obviously before the Great Depression, there was like a lot of ammonium nitrate available. And so did the means to like continue producing it on massive scales. Now, the US government couldn't let that go to waste, which is what reinforced this massive growth of corn in the early 1920s and towards the Great Depression. Okay, so the government does love corporations more than people because yes. Citizen United Supreme Court decision in 2004 came up in a random conversation. And to me, that was the beginning of the end. But Basically, they were using ammonium nitrate and bomb making, but they could also use fertilizer. So that's pretty much where corn came from. Yeah, I mean, corn is just really just bomb food. If you really want to get down to it, it's a C four grass. It's explosive. This you're all you're all learning. You're all learning yeah. so much. Yeah, we we use bomb food to make bomb food. So, anyways, these new synthetic fertilizers, which not only created bombs but also made plants grow really fast allowed farmers to like plant much more dense fields of corn year after year without the need to like rotate their crops and naturally restore that nitrogen to the soil, which they weren't doing a really good job of anyway. Now, this was the process, like I said, our good friend Haber, who was also a Nazi, invented for us. When World War II started, the government constructed 10 new plants to produce ammonia for munitions, and all of these were located in the interior of the country for, you know, security purposes, obviously. Duh. Also super convenient for the proverbial breadbasket, even if it wasn't intended. Several of the plants were built along natural gas pipelines so they could use the gas as a raw material for their production because, like we said, these use a lot of fucking energy. By the end of the war, these new plants and the old ones were producing 730,000 tons of ammonia each year and had the capacity of producing 1.6 million tons. The chemical fertilizer industry, along with like pesticides, which are also based on technologies from war, specifically poison gases, is the product of the government's effort to convert its war machine to peacetime purposes, and this included also privatizing these facilities for that industrial production. Okay, so we were able to produce incredible amounts of corn extremely quickly, and I'm assuming that the fertilizer was used on other crops too, though, right? Like, this wasn't all focused on corn. Yeah, they weren't addicted to corn hub like our generation. Now, we've talked about how corn is just like more efficient than anything else by like a significant magnitude. 
if say every crop got a 30% boost overnight from fertilizer, for example, because of the capacity of corn due to its efficiency as a C4 grass, it only further set it ahead of all the other crops. And its incredible production also quickly became its demise. Okay, so now we're getting to the part where I said the market bottom fell out, right? Yeah, it fell out again and it shucked. Not going to give me a sigh for that? I'm all out of size for you, bud. I'm just crying now. Okay. Oh, God! Ooh, you really caught yourself there. You probably need to go to the hospital. Damn it, this is the second time this year. Do you know if I should take it out or leave it in? Have you heard of the poor Pearl's Almanac? Do I look like I need a book right now? My leg! Bro, I got you. It's a podcast. We can play it on the ride in the Wii Woo. It'll help you learn all this kind of outdoor stuff. The, the Wii Woo, what the- Stay focused, bro. Let me pull it up. Bro, did you know you can make coffee out of acorns? You alright? So let's talk quickly about the government response to farmers losing everything after producing more food than ever. Again. After the food market collapsing 20 years earlier, during the 1920s. It's almost like maybe there's a systemic problem here. It's almost like that, right? But before we talk about the post-World War II legislation, let's back up to the government's response to the first round of farming crashes. The first actual legislation for corn pricing started in the 1920s to support pricing at levels that could feed farmers, and this was during the Dust Bowl, which we could do an entire episode on, but we won't. For now. If you want to go down that road. I just want to do the salty, salty bottom, pro songy bottom. I was born in Corn-Tucky, where I was corn and raised. Soggy bottom boys. Love them. Soggy bottom proles, first off. Soggy bottom boys? I don't know. I mean, it just sounds like a bunch of workers are shit in their pants when you say it. Wow. Ah. So basically, during this time, the government subsidized farmers and basically threw, you could say, everything at the wall to keep food grown domestically. Now, this was all supposed to be temporary, allow some fields to go fallow until the drought was over and to help the soils recover. All, you know, the important stuff. Yeah, and we talked a bit about this in the Osage Orange Hedgerows episode of our prologues content. So there's my shameless plug for this episode. Yeah, if you want to hear that, hop on our Patreon and uh, you can hear us talk about the Dust Bowl again, but not actually the Dust Bowl. Now, what's important to understand about this time is how heavily the agricultural sector got decimated. From like 1929 to 1932, the average farm value fell 70% and the income of farmers dropped like more than 50%. I'm not a smart man, but that sounds pretty terrible. Yeah, and at this time, over like 20% of the American workforce was still on farms. So this wasn't like, again, 1% today where there's just a few folks in town on a farm. And like I said, these were temporary solutions for subsidies. And the idea was to reduce production to limit the amount of corn in the marketplace. So it would just basically cost the government less money to keep the agricultural sector afloat. And it wasn't just corn, it was wheat, it was cotton, and it was even like tobacco and pork and a whole bunch of other things. Yeah, and once again, weed, cannabis, just holding its own. Yeah, it did. Now, what people don't tend to know is that farmers saw the writing on the wall about the need for price fixing before it hit. And there's a lot we could talk about about the traditional leftist politics of a lot of these farmers. 
And while they were interested in working less for the same amount of production, just like any industry, because of things like fixed lands and the marginal cost to grow in the same space, the markets quickly became saturated. There was extensive work being done at this time to create a singular face for international sales of farm goods as basically a union to sell surplus to prop up prices in the U.S. And despite even having overwhelming support by most farmers, the government shot this all down. That sounds about right. And then the Dust Bowl happened. They actually did have like a success right before the Dust Bowl in 1929 with the Agricultural Marketing Act, which supported cooperative marketing organizations. We could really go into the weeds on this and someday again, much like the Dust Bowl, we probably will. But today is not that day. Yeah. So 1929, probably... Well, not a great time for me to be alive. Glad I wasn't. You no, know, definitely not you. It, it sounds like it wasn't fun for anybody. <laughs> no, I mean, it wasn't fun for anyone, but definitely not you. The Dust Bowl was obviously the following year, and that was basically like a one-two punch between the Great Depression and the Dust Bowl that basically annihilated any hope of price fixing guided by farmers first. Starting in the 1930s, most of the farming bills were focused on pricing parity. If you're not familiar with the concept of pricing parity, the short of it is that to fix prices based on a historical value and pairing that value to what it could buy in terms of modern times. So if you needed, say, like 100 bushels of corn to make enough money to buy bread and milk and to keep a roof over a family of four for a year, whatever that indexed profit was set the price for corn. Yeah, and we do that now with like a gallon of milk and bread and stuff to give Comparable examples for inflation, which is a huge word right now. Yeah, I mean, we're all just basically watching our money disappear. It's really fun to be an American right now, where inflation's at 8% a month. Yeah, so it was supposed to be an all-inclusive figure. And like you said, similar to how we calculate inflation today. So I feel like there's still a problem here, because the government is also supposed to have the other, other like citizens' interests considered too, right? Not just people making corn. Yeah, and price fixing ultimately means that goods, specifically here, food, which I guess is a big deal to people, costs more money. And it wasn't just corn that was a part of this, like I said, but basically all of the things we see today sold on like commodity markets. Like bacon. Exactly like bacon. And unsurprisingly, pork production is closely linked to corn, including the development of the Corn Hog Producers Committee. Those two unrelated segments found a, a committee? Hell yeah. So to prop up prices on pork, at one point, five million pigs were slaughtered, and that was all subsidized by the Federal Surplus Relief Corporation. So if there's all this overproduction, why was there a focus on improving yields per acre for corn and, and growing more? So this is all because of the Dust Bowl. The government was basically afraid of it happening again, and during good years, provided massive storage for surplus to keep prices high, while also pushing farmers to basically, you could say, like, strike while the iron is hot. I wish I had a really good corn pun for that, but I don't. But, like, in terms of what we just talked about, like, pork doesn't store well, so corn can go in a barn for a couple of years. Pork, yeah, you don't want to put that in a barn for a couple of years. That's a whole different type of corn hub. Again, and it's got its own dedicated genre. But basically, <laughs> what you're telling me is all stemmed from some sort of messed up, like, fear trauma response from the Dust Bowl. And basically, they're just like, we got to grow obscene amounts of corn so people aren't hungry ever again. Yeah, the government was basically like your great grandfather who refused to throw away decade old newspapers because he might need them someday. 
to be fair, there's still some good cartoons in there, and you can never have too much backup insulation and fire starters. So. Fucking love Garfield. Okay, so after the killing of the little pigs. I mean, that sounds a little heartless. No, that was actually what it was called. Like, that's the formal name. If you go on Wikipedia, go look up Killing of the Little Pigs. It's like not the Three Little Pigs story. So as we inched closer to World War II at this time, we had all these subsidies going on and the government trying to figure out what the hell to do. The government continued to provide these incentives for crops, but also began to like relax the penalties for exceeding the acreage allotments. Again, the don't grow food on every piece of land because we need to try to save some of the topsoil and things like that. So not only were they doing this, they even sometimes supported the surplus production if the crops were considered to be like a value during war. Ethanol production? Exactly. So farmers were even penalized as the war became underway for planting less than 90% war crops, which were corn, wheat, and oats. So production of this C4 grass literally exploded. Yeah, like corn at 355 degrees. I'm just guessing here, but is that popcorn? I don't know. Have you checked Ucorn yet? Or Corn Hub? Have you checked Corn Hub? I'm not an incognito. <laughs> Incornito, you mean? I don't want my cookies and my corn getting crossed up here. <laughs> so when the war ended, uh, much like with all the investment in like ammonium nitrate production, the government basically pulled like the Wiley Coyote move and they'd realized they'd gone off a cliff a while ago and the debate was like, do we accept that things like this massive economic hangover is lingering or do we just like feed the proverbial beast? So basically they followed cartoon logic and didn't look down. So if they didn't look down, gravity didn't take effect and they just kept walking on thin air even though it was going to lead to their demise. They fed that beast is what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, they fed the beast. Yeah. And they made sure it was like corn fed. I was standing with the Wiley Coyote thing. Yeah. It's, car it's cartoon logic. It's cartoon logic and that's America. So much like how no president wants to be the bad guy today to like increase funding for the IRS, no senators or presidents really want to be the one to end the subsidies, even though like everyone understood and continues to understand that they're basically failing. Different versions of subsidies have been all tested out, which is obviously what happens when everyone thinks what's happening right now is working, is that they keep changing it. So over like several decades of tinkering with the policy through things like target prices and price floors and short crops and deficiency payments, it was only in the 1990s that the concept of like direct payments caught hold. Okay, so farmers can get direct cash payments from the government, but workers getting food stamps got to make you feel like you're a criminal. Yeah, and that's America in a nutshell. These payments were supposed to be a temporary measure to wean farmers off subsidies, but unsurprisingly, it didn't work, and we're spending almost a trillion dollars on farm programs today over the next decade. That sounds really sustainable. We could do that forever. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, we can't afford healthcare for all, but we can afford this. Now, with all this rattling in our head, like, I don't know, whatever it is that's in a spray can that makes that tinging sound, let's look at the explosion of corn post-World War II. And before we can go there, what else exploded after World War II? Most of Japan. Technically, yes. Uh, <laughs> but also uh, production of corn per acre. So we've got all this fertilizer that has to be produced because America, we can't let these things go unused. Equipment that we need to have readily available if another war should break out because, you know, we just have this weird habit of ending up in wars. And like, also, why wouldn't you use this amazing thing that we put on the ground and plants grow amazingly quickly? Right, with no negative side effects, as we've talked about. Exactly. 
paired with the ability of the government to basically siphon off excess production from farmers because of its fears of a massive sustained drought, paired with its inability to accept like the consequences of its economic decisions, we could quickly start to see how corn slowly began to consume everything. Not only did it grow more than other crops and store really well, there was little risk because of the government subsidies for those bad years. So I should start my corn farm now. Yes, you should absolutely start a corn farm and then get paid for not growing corn is really what I'm saying here. I mean, how is that any different than what I'm doing now? Exactly. But like, seriously, this incentive system obviously led to like more production for production's sake in the places where it was growing. Now, this corn needed to go somewhere. So quickly, with all these subsidies, things like high fructose corn syrup became cheaper than sugarcane. Not because it was the most efficient use for corn, but because it was something we had a lot of at basically no cost, and it had to get used. Corn became the cheapest food for livestock for the same reason. Now, while corn isn't the most efficient at producing ethanol, it was, once again, a way to use the surplus as well. Yeah, so because corn is cheap, and even if it doesn't initially appear so, because of the fixed pricing, new products are created with it, like all the time still. Brought to you by Cornhub. So it's no surprise then that like 40% of the products in your supermarket have some amount of high fructose corn syrup in them. Here's where things get really interesting when it comes to corn use. We're incredibly good at finding ways to use like every single part of corn, and that's for better or worse. We see all these figures, like 40% of corn is grown on farms just to feed livestock. And it's a huge talking point for vegetarians because why not? It, it, it's a very valid argument on the surface, but it's not entirely accurate. Ooh, I'm excited to find out why they're wrong. Well, to do that, we need to talk about what exactly is a corn kernel and what's it made up of. It's like 70% starch, 2% fiber, 10% protein, 4% oil, and 14% water. And I know all of that just went right outside your brain, but like, hopefully just the general things that are in it are still stuck in there a little bit. I guess you just described the starchy food though. Yeah, it's got a little bit of everything in it. The same exact kernel of corn is broken down into like a bunch of different byproducts using each of these parts of the plant. Saying 40% is grown for animal feed is taking just that 20% fiber piece. Let's talk about this just a little bit. From that same exact kernel of corn, we can get corn oil, feed byproducts, corn starches like glucose, high fructose corn syrup, and most of that glucose that I mentioned is also converted into alcohol, specifically ethanol. Even the stalks that are left in the fields are used as feed for livestock as well. Yeah, I mean, after all, it's still grass. Exactly, or the stalks can be like burned for energy. The fibers, which is cellulose and all that stuff is, well, basically non-consumable for humans, and all that's fed to livestock, which is consumable for humans. All of the things that we give to the livestock is basically the corn kernel shell, and we can't digest it. Yes, that's from experience, Elliot. Yeah, I wasn't going to do that. We've all done that experiment before. Fuck it. Moving on. You eat corn. Gross. Aqua Teen Hunger Force. If you haven't seen it, you need to. <laughs> Ellie's so, dying right now. It's still funny to be after all these years. So <laughs> what you're saying here at this point is if we didn't feed it to livestock, it would go to waste. Like 40% of corn would go to waste if we weren't feeding it to animals. Yeah. 
I mean, we could like compost it or something. There's definitely other ways we could use it. But for the purposes of the economy that exists around us that we're all completely absorbed within, it is the most efficient and effective use of it. And there's plenty of criticisms you can lay at that. This byproduct that we're talking about is often referred to as DDGS or distillers dried grains with solubles. The theme here seems to be a bunch of individual decisions, often well-intended, but they started us down a path that turned pretty ugly with no way back. Yeah, I mean, I hope when people are listening to this that they don't think like we're defending the system we have in place because that's not it at all. Like if you've listened to any of our other episodes, that should be pretty clear. But I think it's also really important that we honestly analyze how we got here to fully understand the complexity of it and like the layers of it that exist and that like it's it's always easy to say like big blank is responsible for this and many cases that's a big part of it but that's not the whole story and like were there bad actors involved in like a lot of the steps that we've talked about like absolutely i mean like haber was a literal nazi like we could talk about the farm bills and the power people have had and how those were designed and who they were designed for there are bad actors for sure but they don't alone account for the system we have today and as easy as it is to just like put the blame on a handful of people it erases the more important picture of why growing food at this scale in a centralized way inevitably leads to monopolization in unstable food systems which is completely disconnected from corn itself as a product as well as those individual actors yeah it's definitely a complex issue and i think this episode will highlight that the government has tried to use Band-Aids to fix a bleeding wound that just won't stop. I mean, it's it's fun. Can't fix systemic problems. Yeah, it will. Yeah, it's it's a lot. But another interesting thing was if you want to hear more about Haber, um, I recently listened to a Behind the Bastards episode about that. So you should probably check that out and listen to it. That's where I got most of my information from. And then Andy enlightened me with his own. So that's always fun. Always. One last thing I do want to bring up as we're recording this is that today the price of corn per bushel when this was written is around seven fifty, which is almost double what it's been in the past decade, but it's still less than half of soy, which is around sixteen dollars a bushel. So it's still relatively speaking dirt cheap. And corn itself isn't bad. Corn is adapted to just about every climate that humans have adapted to. It can live in tropical and temperate climates, dry and rainy climates, cool and warm climates. What this means is that not only can it evolve, but also that there's a huge gene pool to choose from when changing conditions make further adaptation necessary, which I don't know, climate change seems like a big deal. The reality is that it will likely continue to be hugely valuable for the continuation of like all humanity. And that power and importance and centralization in our food systems shouldn't be erased by this blip in our hyper-capitalist world. Yeah, and I'll just add my disclaimer at the end. We made a lot of corn hub jokes, but fuck mass corn production, not corn itself, please. There you go. Invest in the stock market, not the stock market. I quit. Get it? Get it, Elliot. This is our last episode. (laughs) Go back to quarantine, all right? Did you hear me, Elliot? Quarantine. Gonna go have a cornoscopy when we're done here. Then we have some corn chowder. Corn chowder is a real thing, though. That's pretty good. With bacon. Mm. I knew you were listening, enjoying my cornucopia of jokes. This has all been 
and this is from the bottom of my heart, truly one of the worst episodes we've ever done. Yeah, happy 100th episode, everyone. I hope it didn't shuck too hard. Oh, you got another one in there. Just end it. I got Just one do in. do the music, Dom, right over that yeah. last bit. Don't, don't do it. But to go back to like this whole 100 episodes things, like I feel like we haven't covered like a quarter of what I thought we would cover. And honestly, like the first 30 episodes, like I thought we would have covered all this plus some in 30 episodes. Oh, no, they know you by now. You are very long winded. Uh, is that what it is? Yeah, you're a windbag. You could have just told me this. Uh, that's why I gave you a microphone. Oh, the God. perfect co-host. <laughs> you, I'm just you're here. an enabler is what you're saying. I'm just here for flavor, baby. <laughs> like Lowry's. Yeah, dude, you're the main dish. Uh, you're the Lowry's of this uh, corn hub. I, in fact, I am. Salty. It's got the salt. Got the salt. All right, we're done here. I think we're done. Yeah.